Well, good evening, everybody. And I'm wondering whether I can have a little bit more light up here so that I can actually see the Bible. <laughs> Seems a bit darker up here than it has been the other nights. A special welcome to you here tonight if you've come because you're a supporter or a graduate of the EU. We're really so thankful to God for your partnership in the gospel with us at Sydney Uni through the EU Graduates Fund. We wanted to say thank you to you, not just for making the long journey out here to Maru tonight, but for your prayers and your financial generosity that truly helps make the ministry actually happen day by day and week by week. We want to thank you. And we have been praying that tonight will be an encouragement to you, that you will find it uplifting, that it will draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in fact, why don't we pray for that right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great opportunity to meet together, to sing your praises, to reflect on your word together, to be encouraged in our walk with you. And we pray now that you would speak to us by your Spirit, lead us into your truth, that we might be comforted and have greater faith, love and hope and live lives to Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, we've been talking this week about waiting for the end of the world, waiting for that day when God comes and fulfills His promises. And what we've been doing is we've been looking through the Christian Scriptures, working out what can we say about that day, about the end of the world. Now, hopefully you received an outline on your way in tonight. You've either got an annual conference book or you've got one of the outlines. Hand up if you did not get an outline on your way in and I've got some friends who are going to run down and give you one because that will really help. Put your hand right up high and they will come and find you. The first thing we saw, the first thing we want to say about the end of the world is that we usually start looking for it in the wrong direction. See, we think the end of the world, the day when God comes to fulfill all His promises, is in the future. But through the Scriptures, God tells us that if that's where we're starting, we're actually looking in the wrong direction. There is a forward-looking aspect to Christian eschatology, the study of the end, but we actually need to look back before we look forward, because God has already come amongst us to fulfill His purposes. The end has already come, and His name is Jesus. So, where we got to last night was the diagram there at the top of your outline. It's page 26 in the Ancon book. The pattern we saw established in the Old Testament is that when the Lord comes to fulfil His promises, He comes in rescue and judgment. And so when Jesus came, which is the left circle in the diagram, He Himself was the person who was rescued and He was the person who was judged. He was judged at the cross. He was rescued in His resurrection. And through this judgment and rescue of Jesus, the promises of God have been fulfilled. The end has been achieved. But we also saw last night that the New Testament testifies to the fact that even though God's promises have been achieved in Christ, there is yet still a future day of the Lord when Jesus will return and bring a complete fulfilment of God's promises. And so you and I, we live between these two comings of Christ. So what we're going to do tonight is answer two just very practical questions that arise out of this understanding. You can see them there on your page. First of all, if Jesus is the end and God's purposes have already been achieved in Jesus' own person, what does that have to do with me? How does that help me? And the second question is, how are we 
as followers of Jesus, meant to live between these two comings. Now, this is really important because if we really get God's answers to those two questions, I think it will have a profound impact on your Christian life. Grasping God's truth here will empower and free your Christian life. And surprisingly, the answer to both questions lies in the same area. It's all about the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the work of the Holy Spirit in us is a sign that we live in this particular age, the age between the two comings of Christ. It's a sign that God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ and yet will be completely fulfilled at His return. And that's why we call Him the eschatological Spirit, the Spirit that is a marker that we live in these last days. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into this. I'm at the heading, the eschatological Spirit, halfway down page 26. The first thing you need to note when we think about the Spirit is that He is a key part of the promise in the Old Testament. Now, we saw way back on Monday night when we looked at Joel chapter 2, we saw there that the Lord promised to one day send His Spirit on all people. So when the Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples several days after His ascension, the apostles interpreted it as a sign that they're now living in these last days because that's what Joel had said. Have a look there on your page at Acts chapter 2, reading from verse 14. But Peter, one of the apostles, stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice and he proclaimed to them, Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And Peter then goes on and quotes that passage from Joel 2 that we looked at the other night. So then picking up Peter's speech again at verse 32, he says, God has resurrected this Jesus, we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you now see and hear. So notice here, he's talking about the Spirit, but the focus is really on Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus who is to blame, if you can call it that, for this Spirit kerfuffle that's causing such a ruckus in Jerusalem. The risen, living and reigning, ruling Jesus who's received the promised Spirit from His Father, has now poured out His Spirit on who? On His followers. So, picking up Peter's speech again, this time at verse 37. When the crowd heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them. And be baptised, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. See, the promise of the Spirit is for everyone whom God calls, even those who are far off, even for children just as the Lord had promised back in Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. But this pouring out of the Spirit actually fits into an even bigger picture. It's not just, hey, look, God made a promise in Joel, and hey, look, Jesus has now fulfilled that promise in Acts. There's actually an even bigger picture going on. The whole salvation story where God is taking His creation all the way through to new creation, is on view here in the pouring out of the Spirit. The next passage there on your page from Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul ties the giving of the Spirit into the promise that God made to Abraham. 
I'm reading there from Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Now, the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who has faith. Now, what's the blessing in which the nations share? Well, from what Paul says there, it's justification. That is, they are justified by God. They are declared by God to be okay. You're right with me on the basis of them trusting God, on the basis of their faith. But what was God's purpose behind this? Picking it up at verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, and here's the bit to underline if you're taking notes, so that we would receive the promised Spirit through faith. God's intention in justifying us Gentiles, us non-Jews, through faith in Christ was so that we might receive the Spirit. And that's because the Spirit, as we'll see tonight, is part of God's answer to the big problem that affects everyone, every human being, the problem of sin. And so the pouring out of the Spirit is this key moment in God's eschatological plan. He's keeping His promise to bless the nations of the world, to fix up what was wrong, and He's doing something about sin in Jesus and in the pouring out of the Spirit. So, just a little reflection here for your encouragement. Every time you see the work of God's Spirit among the Gentile Christians, the people like you and me who are not Jewish of background and who have faith in Christ, every time you see a work of God's Spirit amongst a Christian person, I want you to be encouraged. Because what that's telling you, even though it might not look like much, I tell you what's going on there, there is the great fulfilment of God's big plan. Because there is a human being who's been blessed by God with His Holy Spirit. It is an incredible sign of God's eschatological promises and fulfilment. So when you turn up to church and you see people serving one another with whatever gift the Spirit has given, when you see them teaching the Word to children or to adults, when you see Christians singing songs of praise with genuine gratitude in their hearts to God, when you see Christians just getting on with the business of loving one another and being kind and generous to one another, be encouraged. It might not look spectacular to you, but it is extraordinary. It is the amazing work of God in fulfilling His purposes in His creation, happening right there in your little Christian community. that you are there, gathered as part of God's people, loving each other in the power of the Spirit, that in itself is a sign that God is achieving His purposes for the world. So having thought a little bit about how the Spirit then fits into the big picture of God's plans, let's come back then to the two practical questions with which we started. Remember the first question? If Jesus is the end and God has achieved His purposes already in Him, how does that help you? How does it help me? The answer, I said, has to do with the Spirit, and in particular, I'm now at part B, the top of page 27, part B, the Spirit unites us to Jesus through faith. So you can see Paul's answer there on your page from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul writes, For we were all baptised by one Spirit into one body. The one body into which we've been baptised there is, is Jesus, together as His people, the New Testament calls us the body of Christ. How do you join this body of Christ? Well, according to Paul, you undergo a spiritual baptism. 
That's Paul's answer here. We're baptised by this one Spirit into the one body. It's our common experience of the Spirit that unites us and makes us into the body of Christ. Now, don't get too freaked out by this idea of a Spirit baptism. It's actually exactly the same thing that the Apostle Peter was talking about back in Acts chapter 2. He just expresses it slightly differently. The way Peter put it was... You need, to be, you need to repent, be baptised in Jesus' name, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. See, the physical act of being baptised in water, that is just the external sign of what is meant to be an internal commitment of turning to Jesus and entrusting yourself to Him. Now, turning to Jesus, that's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. Entrusting yourself to Jesus, that's what the Bible calls faith. But the physical act of baptism is just that external sign of that internal turning and entrusting. And what Peter says in Acts 2, when you turn to Jesus, when you repent and entrust yourself to Him, then you will receive this promised Spirit. So what's the result then of becoming part of the body of Christ? Well, this is the astounding blessing of the gospel. As part of Jesus' body, we share in the achievements that He won. Because you're now part of Jesus' body, the achievements that He won at His death and resurrection, what are true for Him now become true for you because you're a member of His body. You can see that there in the diagram. I tried to represent it on your page. Because Jesus has died to sin and is now right with God, we share in that justification because we're united to Him. We're okay with God because Jesus is okay with God. Because Jesus is pure and blameless and we're united to Him, we're counted as pure and blameless. Because Jesus is God's Son and we're united to Him, we're adopted as God's children with all the privilege that comes of being a child of God. And because Jesus has been glorified and we're united to Him, one day we will share in that glory. So John Calvin, who is a great 16th century reformer, summarised the situation like this. It's there on your page. He says... We must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on His only begotten Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that He might enrich poor and needy men. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him... All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is through, he says, the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all of his benefits. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to Himself. So if it weren't for the work of the Spirit uniting you to Jesus, then everything Jesus has achieved, the end that God has achieved in Him, that would be irrelevant for you. It's only because Jesus has united us to Himself through that Spirit, that the end Jesus has achieved for us is actually then achieved in us. Now, I think this is an incredibly freeing reality. See, what's clear here is that our salvation, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, our salvation is entirely the work of God. It is in no way dependent on my efforts or my achievements or my merit. What counts here is the sufficiency of Christ 
and the efficacy or the power of the Spirit. That's what matters. Christ's efficiency and the Spirit's power. So is Jesus the Son of God, justified, sanctified, glorified? Is, is that true for Jesus? We go, yes, that, absolutely, sure, yes, I believe Jesus is those things. Right, okay. Has Jesus poured out the Spirit into our hearts and is the Spirit able to unite you to Jesus? Well, sure, yeah, I guess, sure, yeah. Well, then that's the end of the matter, isn't it? Because of Christ and because of the Spirit, God says, you are okay. You are cleansed. You are adopted as my child. You will be glorified. See, we so easily, we so quickly focus in on ourselves. We worry about the quality of our faith. It feels so weak. Is it really enough? Or we worry about our past, even though we've come to Christ in repentance and faith, we worry about those sins of our past and can God really see past those? Or we get skewed by our feelings. God feels so distant, so maybe He is. But do you get the problem there? We're looking at ourselves when we should be looking to God. I'm worried about the poverty of my own faith rather than trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. I'm sidetracked by the changing sort of experiences of my feelings rather than rejoicing in the power of the Spirit to unite me to Christ. So friends, look more to Jesus and the Spirit. Don't doubt your adoption. Don't doubt your justification, your sanctification on the basis of your feelings, on the basis of how you feel whether God is near or far from you, or on how much Bible you know compared to someone else, or on the basis of what sins lie there in your past, look to Jesus and rejoice in the power of the Spirit that He's poured out that unites you to Him so that you can share His benefits. Now, for some of you, I've no doubt that you then have a follow-up question to that. That's all well and good, Rowan, but how do I know that I have that spirit within me to unite me to Jesus. How can I be sure of that? Well, that's a great question. And the short answer goes like this. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Are you seeking to live as His disciple? If you say, well, yes, but, you know, imperfectly... I make mistakes all the time. I I keep falling back into old ways. I mean, I'm trying to. I'm trying. That's the path I'm on. I'm trying to follow Jesus. But I. Friend, if you didn't have the Spirit, you would not be trying to be on that path. The New Testament is very clear. No one seeks to genuinely live for Jesus without the Spirit of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 3 says. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, and mean it in your heart. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, without the Spirit of God. Now, you might want to follow up more with that. So, at the end of tonight's session, if, you, if there's something you want to talk about there, or there's something that you want to pray about, there'll be some staff workers just down the front here, on your left. Please come and pray with them. Do business with God over those things and then go and get ready for Bollywood. Okay, so it's the Spirit that unites us back to Jesus and what Jesus has achieved for us. But the Spirit also, you can see there, is the guarantee of the promised future. I'm now at part C on page 27. So the Apostle Paul here uses three wonderful images to describe how the Spirit connects us to the future. First, he says, the Spirit is God's seal of ownership. Have a look there, what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, there on your page. He says, Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us, 
He has also sealed us and given us the Spirit as a down payment in our hearts. So by putting His Spirit in us, God marks us as belonging to Him. It's that old-fashioned sort of wax seal. We belong to Him. We are His workmanship. Now, I'm going to tell a story here just for the old-timers, some of the supporters who are here. When I was uh, a kid, um, I saved up some money and I bought myself, or actually it might have been a birthday present, actually, I got a sound system. I'm not talking iPod. Way, way before digital media. Yes, I'm talking, I'm not talking iPod, I'm not talking CD player. I'm saying I got a beautiful double cassette deck. (laughs) You don't know what a cassette deck is, but let me say they were awesome, because then you could copy tape to tape and like it was awesome. I got this portable double cassette deck. I was probably in about year seven or year eight. This was awesome. And so because I was so proud of this thing that was now mine, you know what I did? I got one of those school compasses. You know the things you draw the circles with? I'm not going to pay money for engraving. So I got that school compass and I scratched as neatly as I could my name across the top of this thing because someone might break into my house and steal this double cassette deck. (laughs) And so forever after, and if you come to my house, I can show you, I still have it, hidden in a very special place, (laughs) with my name scratched across the top. I put my mark on it because it was mine and precious. You know, that's, that's who the Holy Spirit is in your life. He's God's seal on you. You are His. And He's put His Spirit in you as a seal, a mark of ownership. You're that precious to Him. The second image is that of a down payment. The Spirit is the down payment on our future resurrection clothing. I'm reading here from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. It's a way of talking about the future resurrection that Jesus promises. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, Because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that this mortality may be swallowed up by life. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. The idea of a down payment is actually not just about that there's more to come, you know, like a first instalment. The idea here is that it is a guarantee, it is a pledge, a promise. I'm giving you this much as my promise to give you the rest. Here, what's the rest? The rest is your resurrection from the dead. A guaranteed future in the new creation. That's what the Spirit signifies in your life. Not a possible future, like maybe you will graduate, maybe, don't know, some of you it's a bit iffy, frankly. (laughs) Maybe you'll be famous, probably a lot less likely. It's not not a possible future, what we're talking about here is a certain and sure future. The Spirit is God's personal guarantee to you of the future. What would happen is as you're walking out tonight and you're walking through sort of up towards your car or to the accommodation and suddenly the heavens opened and a voice from heaven said, by the way, John, I will make sure you are resurrected in the new creation. You will be going, woo! <laughs> and that, I have had a guarantee. 
Now, the truth of the matter is that just could be some friend playing some prank on you (laughs) if that happened. That you have the Spirit of God active in your life is no prank. It's the real deal. God, who has prepared you for that very thing, has put His Spirit in you as a down payment. It is not up for grabs, your future in Christ. It is certain. You're just waiting for that day. And that's not all. The Spirit is also, point C, the first fruits of the adoption, the redemption to come. From Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the, the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? I don't know if you know this, but every year there's a really big deal made of the first tray of mangoes to go on sale at the Sydney fruit markets for the season. Happens in about August each year. Well, last August, the tray of 12 mangoes shipped all the way from the Northern Territory went for, wait for it, $30,000. That's, just to help you out, that's $2,500 per mango. (laughs) That tray is the precious first fruits of the season, right? But just think about this for a moment. No one who is there at that auction. No one is thinking, I better bid a lot for those mangoes because there ain't going to be any more. No one's thinking that. They know this is just the first fruits. This is just the, the first 12 mangoes. There is the whole rest of the harvest to come. That's about 65 million trays in Australia in a season. 65 million trays to come. This is the first fruits. It is incredibly precious because it signifies the great harvest that is about to come. Your experience of the Spirit working in your life, when, it, when He convicts you of sin, when He encourages you to pray, when you're out there serving in Christian community, when you're seeking to love people who the world rejects, when you're seeking to be patient with one another, kind, show the compassion of Christ, any time the Spirit is at work in your life like that, friend, that is just the first fruits of what God is going to do in your life by the power of the Spirit. So here's a whole lot more reasons to be encouraged when you see that Spirit working in your life. He's God's seal of ownership on you. He's God's down payment, His guarantee of your future resurrection into the new creation. And as powerful as the Spirit's work in your life now is, that is just the first tray of mangoes. He is just the first fruits and the rest of the mighty harvest is still to come. So we end up with the picture at the bottom of page 27. The Spirit unites us back to Christ so we can share in His benefits, but the Spirit also points us forward as the guarantee and the first fruits of what is still to come. But what about now? That's the second question with which we started. How are we to live now between the two comings of Jesus? So the answer is over the page on page 28. Part D, the Spirit is also God's power to live now. 
Now, how are we to live now? Well, the key to rightly living is to know who you are. Okay, let me say that again. The key to living rightly tonight and tomorrow and for the rest of your days is to know who you are. If you don't know your identity, you don't know how to live. You won't know how to live. Uh, you remember those, the Born Identity movies? Remember those? Right? It's like Jason Bourne in the Born Identity movies. It's his problem. If you don't know that you are a highly trained assassin <laughs> with enemies all around you, if you don't know that, you don't know how to live properly. Well, we have that problem except that you're not a highly trained assassin. (laughs) But as Christians, we so quickly forget who we are. And because we forget who we are, we forget how we're meant to live. So here's two passages that remind us of who we are in Christ. First is there from 1 Thessalonians 5. We belong to the day with a capital D. But you, says Paul, are not in the dark for this day, that's the day of the Lord, to overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, we must not sleep like the rest. But we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put the armour of faith and love on our chests and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him." Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, as you are already doing. We belong to the day, the the coming day of the Lord, when instead of meeting God's wrath for our rebellion, our rejection of Him, we'll be saved through Christ. And so we're to live as those who belong to that day. Know who you are, and you'll know how to live. We're to be awake, is the metaphor Paul uses there. That means being alert, being attentive, being deliberate, not being asleep at the wheel. And what that looks like, according to Paul here, is is arming yourself, wrapping yourself in faith, trust in Jesus, in love and in hope and not foolishly engaging in the deeds of darkness. That's who we are. As Christians, as followers, we belong to that day. So live like it. Second image Paul uses to remind us of who we are is that we're citizens of heaven. So this is from Philippians chapter 3. You can see what Paul says there. Paul writes this, he says, Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example that you have in us. For I have often said to you, and now say again with tears... That many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, this idea of being a citizen of heaven is actually often misunderstood. Paul is not saying, your home is in heaven. He's not saying your home is in heaven as a Christian. We think it's like being an Aussie backpacker overseas. You've got your little koala hanging off your backpack and your passport that says, my home ain't here, I'm from the land down under. 
That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's the writing to the Christians in Philippi. Now, Philippi was a pretty special city. It was a Roman colony. People in Philippi prided themselves on having Roman citizenship. They were citizens of Rome. Now, that did not mean that their home was in Rome. No, they lived there in Philippi. But they did have a special status as Roman citizens. They enjoyed special privileges. It was an identity with privileges, including one of the privileges being that if Philippi as a city was in distress, who was going to come to her aid? Well, the answer was Caesar, the Roman emperor, who was actually sometimes called saviour. So now when you read what Paul says, what do you think he's talking about? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying you have a special status, an identity that far outshines any Roman citizenship. Your citizenship is from heaven. And the one who will rescue you is the Saviour who will come from there, Jesus the Christ. He will come from there, rescue His people by transforming their lowly bodies to become like His glorious resurrection body. And in the meantime, we're to stand firm in Him. Now, according to Paul, what that means is don't get consumed with the earthly things Because you're in an outpost of a heavenly citizenship. Don't get consumed with the earthly things, verse 19. And instead, follow the example that Paul himself has set, verse 17. Now, that's a quick reminder of who we are then in Christ. We belong to the day and we're citizens of heaven. How's that going to shape our living? I'm now at point two on page 28. How do we do this? Well, there are two mistakes we can make living between, as we do, the two comings of Christ. Mistake number one is bringing what is future into the present, what's called over-realized eschatology. It's always nice to have just a few big phrases to impress your friends with, but they won't be impressed, so don't bother really. (laughs) Let me explain this mistake. This mistake, or the mistake here, is to forget... That while God's promises have been fulfilled now in Jesus, they have not yet been completely fulfilled in us. You fall into the trap of thinking that we have the complete fulfillment now. Now, you might think, well, that's just silly. Obviously, we don't have the complete fulfillment now. Who could possibly think that? But often this over-realized eschatology creeps in more subtly. No one will say, probably, that all of God's promises have been completely fulfilled, but they might say, some of God's promises you can fully experience now in these particular areas. Areas in which I actually think the Bible leaves those promises to the future. So a classic example is what's known as the prosperity gospel. This is the claim, supposedly based on the Bible, that God wants you to have health, wealth and success now. In fact, according to this view, He's promised it for you now and if you just trust Him, if you just have enough faith, He will fulfill these promises to you now. Now, I mention this prosperity gospel because around the world, this prosperity gospel at the moment is flourishing. Just as one example, friends of ours in Africa tell me that much of the incredible growth in the Christian church in their part of Africa is happening in churches that preach a prosperity gospel. Is that any surprise, really? God wants you to be healthy, to be rich, to be successful now. That's a pretty attractive message, isn't it? And actually, it's not just an attractive message in the developing world. There are quite a few churches 
in Sydney, in some denominations, where you will hear this prosperity preaching quite regularly. It's a message that contemporary materialistic Australia is itching to hear. God wants to fulfil all my materialistic ambitions and He wants to give it to me now. That's a pretty attractive message. In fact, I think it has all the allure of gambling. And it's no surprise that gambling is a big problem in greedy Australia. Because here's yet another chance where I might strike it rich. This prosperity preaching has all the allure of gambling as well as about much likelihood of success because it is all based on a mistaken, over-realised reading of the Bible. And it's also just as poisonous and destructive as gambling. I know a number of people who've had really serious illnesses And in some cases, illnesses where they've only been given a limited amount of time to live. And then to be told, in the name of Jesus, that the reason God hasn't healed you must be because you have not had enough faith. Can you even begin to imagine what that's like? And especially because I don't think there is any indication in the Bible properly understood, that says God's will is for you to be healed of any particular illness, this side of glory. See, the New Testament does talk about a life that has no more suffering, no more need, a life where frustration has come to an end, but it's the description of the life in the new creation, not of life here. See, the catch cry of over-realised eschatology is victory, success, prosperity, now, now, now! But the New Testament message is suffering and perseverance and then glory. And in that vein, the model set in the New Testament for our present experience is the life that Jesus Himself experienced amongst us. There's suffering, yes, there's difficulty now, although our Father in Heaven sustains us through it. And for those who in His strength persevere to the end, there will be a future sharing in His glory and great blessing. There will be prosperity in the future as part of the new creation. And I can be confident of that because, well, Jesus has already been raised from the dead and experiences that future now. So I know it's certain. But I can't apply it to my present experience. So may I say, if you don't really have a place for suffering in the Christian life, except as some sort of failure of faith or a failure of God, you probably have an over-realised eschatology. There's a second mistake we can make as well, mistake number two, suppressing the present under the past, an under-realised eschatology. Now, the mistake here is to actually not realise how much God has fulfilled His promises in Christ and how that really does actually make a real difference to our life now. It's as though we think no real change has happened for us or in us by the work of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit. So if the over-realised eschatology is a mistake you, you sometimes can find in some Pentecostal churches, this under-realised eschatology is a mistake you can sometimes find in churches that neglect the Bible's teaching about the Holy Spirit. See, maybe they're teaching about the work of Jesus, but they're not giving much encouragement about the new birth and the new creation that we are in Christ by the Spirit. There might be teaching about the need to live a holy life following Christ, but not much reminder that that same Christ has poured out His Spirit in us to empower and enable us to be obedient. There might be teaching about the importance of putting off sin and the works of the flesh, but not much rejoicing 
that in Christ we are no longer under sin's power and no longer in the flesh, but we are now in the Spirit. See, the catch cry of the under-realized eschatology is, try harder and don't expect very much. Whereas the New Testament message is basically positive. Walk in the Spirit and keep on pleasing God. So if you don't share the New Testament's basic optimism about the ability to actually live the Christian life, I'm not saying a perfect life, I mean just the Christian life, characterised by faith and love and hope and repentance. If If you're not optimistic about your ability to do that in the power of the Spirit, then possibly you have an under-realized eschatology. So these are the two mistakes we must avoid. And I think a more accurate picture then of our present experience between the two comings of Christ is there in the middle of page 29. It's a picture of life in the Spirit. The Spirit unites us back to Christ so that we share in all of His benefits. The Spirit links us to the future as the guarantee and first fruits of the blessings to come. And the Spirit is God's way of empowering us now to live in the present for Him. So in this final part of the talk, we're going to very briefly just look at some things we're told to do with respect to this Spirit in terms of living now between the two comings of Christ. I've actually got four on your page, the first two from Galatians, second two from Ephesians, but in the interest of time, we're just going to look at the first two. The first is there in the middle of page 29. What should we do? How do we live this life in the Spirit? First of all, we've got to walk in the Spirit. The passage on your page is from Galatians 5. Paul makes a basic distinction in this passage. You are either in the flesh, by which he means living a life controlled by fleshly desires, fleshly, worldly, ungodly desires, or you're in the Spirit, which is a life directed, prompted, empowered by the Spirit. And the fact that the flesh and the spirit are diametrically opposed to each other, he makes that point in verse 17. He says, the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit what is against the flesh. But look at the clear point he makes in verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's no question for Paul, we've put the flesh to death when we turn to Christ and put our faith in Him. And so he continues, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, we must follow the Spirit. And elsewhere in that passage, instead of calling it following the Spirit, he calls it walking by the Spirit or being led by the Spirit. And those who are in Christ Jesus, who are alive by the Spirit's work, this is what we're to do. This is how we're to live, to walk by the Spirit, to follow the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? Paul gives a very clear picture here. First of all, he has a list of the works of the flesh. These are the things that we have crucified in coming to Christ and the things we're to put to death in ourselves by the Spirit. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality which means any sort of sexual relationship outside of male-female marriage, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. So, it's obviously not an exhaustive list. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how did Paul come up with this sort of list of works of the flesh? He's talking about behaviour that is uncontrolled that is driven by passions without any restraint, behaviour which is destructive to relationships with God and with others. This is, if you like, night time 
behaviour. It doesn't fit with those who live in the day to come, life in the Kingdom of God. Which means that if there are things on that list, or things that just are similar, that keep coming up in your Christian walk, you need to get serious. You need to put them to death in the strength and the power that the Spirit provides. Don't play fast and loose with your holiness. Because remember who you are. But then positively, Paul shows what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. Verse 22, and, and maybe if you've been around Christian things, you know this verse well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. So how are you going at cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in your life? It's a list that's actually worth saying slowly, isn't it? Love. Joy. How are you going with joy? Peace. Patience. Kindness. What about goodness? What about faithfulness? How are you going with gentleness? How about self-control? Are these fruit apparent in your life? Are they there in increasing abundance? Now, even as I ask that question, I'm feeling uncomfortable. But this is what walking in the Spirit looks like. This is following the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Now, you might think, frankly, this doesn't look very spectacular. Kindness seems a lot less spiritually impressive than, say, ooh, I don't know, prophecy. Well, may I say, if you think that, that's just because you do not have very spiritual eyes. Kindness is a wonderful fruit of the Spirit, and you should pursue that work of the Spirit in your life. So if you turn over the page to page 30, you can see the way Paul talks about this in Galatians is in terms of sowing them to the Spirit. Look at how Paul encourages the Galatian Christians in this passage. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. So you have a choice, right? Are you going to sow to the flesh or are you going to sow to the Spirit? You can't just sit back and be passive. Lord, you know, make me kind. And just not do anything. Sowing, you know, planting seeds, that is an activity. You don't just sit on the porch and say, sow. <laughs> You've got to do something. Get up. This is your life. You have to live as a follower of Jesus. How are you sowing? You are sowing to the flesh or you are sowing to the Spirit. And Paul says, know who you are. Sow to the Spirit. And if you do that, you will reap a great harvest at the proper time. What proper time? At the end. When you are transformed into the likeness of the living Lord Jesus. So don't give up. Well, time to wrap up. We started with two questions. If God has already achieved the end in Jesus, how does that help us? 
And how are we to live now between the comings of Christ? The Spirit has been the answer to both. The Spirit unites us to Jesus and His benefits. He's the guarantee and first fruits of the future to come. He's God's empowerment for us to live now as people who belong to that day. So let's get on with it. In the power of the Spirit that He has poured out within our hearts and minds. Don't live any longer in the darkness. So to the Spirit. Because God's promised that we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus and for pouring out your Spirit into our hearts so that we might share in all that he has won and achieved for us. We thank you for our justification our adoption, our sanctification. We thank you for your spirit that empowers us to live for you and which is the great guarantee of all that you've promised. So we pray, please, Father, that you would help us by that spirit to sow to your spirit within us, that we might put off the deeds of darkness, live as the people you've created us to be, and that we might walk in holiness and righteousness and faith, love, and hope before you, to your glory and praise. Amen.